In these lessons for the past several weeks, we have been studying and talking about the thought of the idea of the misunderstood church, hoping and endeavoring to clear up misunderstandings that people sometimes have about churches of Christ and what we believe and what we teach, and hoping to create a deeper faith in our own hearts for the sake of our souls, and hopefully we're accomplishing that purpose. And I have some very sad news for you this morning. I do not have a new joke today about misunderstandings. But I'll have one next Sunday. My prayer is that we are understanding more about what this book that we call the Bible teaches. Because our desire is for us to comprehend the pattern of New Testament Christianity. As we have said so many times this past month, it is incredibly easy to have a misunderstanding. And one of the big misunderstandings many people have about churches of Christ and the things that we believe and the things that we teach is about baptism. And what we teach about the importance, the significance, and the importance that we attach to baptism. I've even heard preachers from other groups refer to us. I've had them refer to me as a water bug Christian. Quite as honestly, I thought that was a bit harsh. I thought it was somewhat condescending even. And maybe just an itty bit mean. But then maybe I misunderstood. We talked last Lord's Day about salvation and church membership in the New Testament pattern. Remember on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, as it's recorded in Acts 2? Peter preached that day, and when he said, This same Jesus whom you've crucified, God, has made both Lord and Christ, those people were touched by that sermon. It says they were pricked in their hearts in the King James. Other translations says they were cut to the heart. They were touched deeply. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter, of course, said to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This morning, what I want us to do is continue today on the importance of baptism and on the necessity of baptism. The fact that baptism is necessary. It's both necessary for salvation and it's both necessary for church membership. And our beginning point today is going to be a history lesson. Because you see, this position that baptism was necessary for salvation and church membership, that is not a new concept. In fact, give or take a year or two, one way or the other, it was the unanimous belief of Christianity for 1,500 years. If you doubt me, you can come to my office and you can pour through the eight-volume set of the History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff. Remember, we talked about Martin Luther in one of our lessons. And we talked about that movement that was known as the Protestant Reformation. 
Well, there was another man, not as well known as Martin Luther, who played a very significant role in that Reformation. He was a man by the name of Huldrych Zwingli. And in the early 1500s, Zwingli came to a bold conclusion, he thought. Zwingli decided that every Bible teacher before him for 1,500 years had been wrong about baptism. Zwingli determined that for 1,500 years, every teacher that had come before him was wrong in their belief that baptism was necessary for salvation. His view was that baptism was not essential for salvation. Now, if you read up on your church history, Zwingli's position went against 1,500 years of teaching. Now, to make what could be a very long story extremely short, Zwingli taught that baptism had two basic purposes. Zwingli taught that baptism was essentially a public announcement. Something that was mostly for the benefit of the church. According to Zwingli, it was a person's announcement that he or she was joining their fellow Christians in their commitment to serve Jesus. And from Zwingli's teaching in the 1500s is where the popular belief that baptism is a public testimony comes from. Zwingli also taught, secondly, that baptism was a sign of our covenant with God. And furthermore, he associates this covenant with the covenant that God made with Abraham. That just as circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, baptism was the sign of God's covenant with the Christian. Now, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. After Zwingli formulated this new teaching and this new doctrine of baptism, he did not live very long. But Zwingli's point of view and Zwingli's teaching was adopted by another very influential reformer. Does the name John Calvin ring a bell? How about Calvinism? Because of the influence of John Calvin, this doctrine of baptism that was developed by Zwingli was adopted by the majority of the religious groups that grew out of and emerged from the Reformation movement. And this is why that most religious groups that trace their spiritual roots to the Reformation still reject the idea that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It all goes back to Huldrych Zwingli. Now, here is my question. Now, remember, I'm, I'm just a simple country preacher. 
Why did every Bible teacher for the first 1,500 years of Christian history believe that baptism was necessary for salvation? Folks, quite simply, that's the most straightforward meaning of so many Scriptures in the New Testament. Scriptures that link baptism and salvation together. And that explains why they believe baptism was necessary for salvation. It also explains why we teach, why I teach, that baptism is necessary for salvation. I want us this morning to just look at some passages of scriptures in the New Testament. I want us to look at some scriptures that link baptism and salvation. And as we do this, let's just let God's Word as it's recorded in the Bible, let's just let the Word of God say what it says. Let's don't try to read something into it. Let's just accept the most natural, most straightforward meaning of the words. What do the Scriptures say? Well, first of all, I'll go back to Acts 2. We talked about that last week, and we talked about it briefly in our introduction this morning. Peter, you just told us that we this Jesus God raised up, we crucified. What do we do, Peter? What do we do about it? What did Peter tell him to do? Dr. Luke tells us what happened. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted and said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Then you skip down to verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, we've got there the Apostle Paul as he's making his defense before King Agrippa. He's telling King Agrippa about his encounter on the Damascus Road that's recorded in Acts chapter 9. In that ninth chapter of Acts, Saul is on his way to Damascus. Remember, Saul is the one that was holding the clothes of those that stoned Stephen to death. And he's on his way to Damascus, and he's got letters from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem that if he finds Christians in Damascus, he can put them in prison, he can bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And on his way to Damascus, he's blinded by a great light. And he goes to his knees. He hears a voice and, the, he says, the, and he sees no man. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And looking up on his knees, blinded by a light, he said, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. What would you have me to do, Lord? He said, go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. 
Then God spoke to a preacher by the name of Ananias. And He said, I want you to go into the city of Damascus. I want you to inquire at a house on a street called Straight for one Saul. He's praying for you. Now, it doesn't tell me this, but I can just imagine that preacher. Lord, I've heard about this guy Saul. I know what he does to people like me. Lord, isn't there somebody besides me that can go? Does it have to be me? But he went. And as Paul relates that to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 22, he tells him that Ananias said, Saul, why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You know what Paul the preacher said to King Agrippa? He said, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. In Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus had raised had been raised from the dead by the glory of God, He gives His marching orders, what we call the Great Commission, to His apostles. He says, Go you therefore and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, and we're going to get to this in a later lesson. Teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. That's actually the very first mention of Christian baptism anywhere in the New Testament, by the way. But then in Mark 16, 15, and 16, that's, this is one of those really straightforward passages, folks. Jesus talking to His disciples. He says, Go you into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Jesus inextricably links baptism and salvation in that passage. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now there's a lot of folks that want to side with Zwingli and make the argument that the important part of that is just the belief because Jesus said, He that believeth not shall be condemned. So really belief is all that's significant. But I want you to look at that from a different point of view. Let's just say for argument's sake we had a bus station here in Center, Texas. We used to. And let's say you wanted to ride the bus to Houston. And so you go down and you say, what do I have to do to go to Houston? You have to buy a ticket and get on the bus to go to Houston. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Buy a ticket, get on the bus, go to Houston. If you don't buy a ticket... You can't go to Houston. You see, believing is buying the ticket. Baptism is getting on the bus. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that buys a ticket, gets on the bus, will go to Houston. He that doesn't buy a ticket won't go to Houston. You see, like I said, I'm just a very simple guy. But when you boil it down to its simplest terms, that's what this book is saying. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, Peter's talking about the few souls saved from the flood. And he says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved from the flood by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, he said, does also now save us. As I said, let's just take the Scriptures for what they say, not for what we think they say, not for what they ought to have said, not for what they should have said, or not for what somebody else says they said, just for what they said. And those Scriptures link baptism and salvation inextricably together. Baptism, of course, as far as its proper form is concerned, and as far as the proper candidate for baptism is concerned, baptism is a burial. That's the whole meaning of the word baptize. You see, the word baptize is actually not a word that's translated into English. Baptize is the transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. It's just given an English form, an English pronunciation, and an English spelling. And the word baptizo in the Greek language means to make overwhelmed, to be fully wet. It means the processes of immersion, submersion, and emergence. And that's according to Strong's Exhaustive Dictionary of the Greek Language. What do the Scriptures teach us about baptism being a burial? Well, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, and in Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, we find there the record of Jesus going to Jordan to John to be baptized. And it says that when Jesus was baptized, He came up out of the water. For a grown man to come up out of the water, that would require a great deal of water. You read in John chapter 3 and verse 23 that John was baptizing at Enon near to Salem because there was much water there. And then you read about the conversion of the Ethiopian nobleman in Acts chapter 8 where that Ethiopian who was a ruler under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, he was actually a cabinet member. He was a treasurer. He had been to Jerusalem to worship, and he was on his way back, and he was reading from Isaiah's prophecy. And the Spirit of the Lord told Philip, the evangelist, to go and join himself to the chariot the eunuch was riding in. And he was reading from Isaiah 53, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shepherd is done, so open he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who should declare his generation? His life is taken from the earth. And it says that the eunuch said, Of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself or of some other man? 
And Philip began at the same scripture and preached to him Jesus. Now we don't know what was in that sermon. We don't know what Philip said to him. But from the rest of the text, somewhere in that sermon, Philip must have mentioned baptism. Because it says they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, Here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He overwhelmed him. He fully immersed him. They came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. The eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into that water. Now, folks, that takes a lot of water. You've got two grown men going down in that water. That takes a lot of water. Then in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking there to those brethren in Rome, and he said, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And listen to Know you not that so many of us have been, as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death. Therefore, Paul said, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul in Romans 6, 3 and 4, describes baptism as a burial. Baptism is believer's immersion. What did Philip say to that eunuch? The eunuch says, here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized right now? Philip said, if you believe, you can be baptized. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In Acts chapter 16, we've got Lydia and her employees having prayer down by the river. And Paul and his company, his, Paul and the other preachers, Go down to preach to them there. And it says there was a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, that worshipped. She worshipped God. It says that she heard the things Paul was preaching. It says the Lord opened her heart to attend to the things that were spoken by Paul. Verse 15 says... And when she was baptized and her household, she believed. Baptism is believer's immersion. Now, the question that I know sometimes folks have asked me through the years, I've had this asked to me more than once. Tim? What about those that are baptized differently? 
What about those that didn't follow that biblical model of baptism? Believers immersion for the forgiveness of sins. What about those that were sprinkled rather than immersed? What about those that were only baptized as infants? What about all those who were immersed as believing adults but were not immersed for the purpose of receiving the gift of salvation and beginning a new life? I want to share with you the following quote from Dr. Jack Cottrell. He was professor of theology at Cincinnati Christian University from 1967 to 2015. He said, It is obvious that human traditions have seriously distorted and limited the light of Scripture concerning baptism. And many sincere people have responded in good conscience to what light they have. So the answer, my friends, is this. Final judgment. That's God's territory. It's not my department. It's above my pay grade. I therefore cannot say with absolute certainty how God's going to judge every single person. I cannot say how God will judge those who responded to inaccurate teachings about baptism. But I'll tell you this. You can write this down. You can etch this in stone. I will say that I am perfectly content to let God have the final word on who is and who is not saved. But, that said, every morning I get up and I go into the bathroom and I rub soap on my face and I look in a mirror and I shave myself. And I cannot look myself in the eye to shave without preaching what's in this book. I can't do it. I've got to be true to myself. So I cannot preach and I cannot teach what I hope God will do. I cannot preach and I cannot teach what I wish God would do. I can only preach and I can only teach what God has clearly revealed to us through His Word, the Bible. And that said, I want to remind us of what I think is the most important and one of the most terrifying scriptures anywhere in the Bible, and we talked about this scripture last Sunday, it's in Matthew 7. Jesus is bringing that Sermon on the Mount to a close. And He says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name we cast out devils? And in thy name we did many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. (coughs) Why will Jesus say to those people He never knew them? Because they were not obedient to the will of the Father. Because He said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Folks, The Bible clearly gives us a pattern. We can't trust our feelings. Feelings can be deceiving. What we can trust is what God has revealed to us through His Word. And through His Word, God has revealed to us how to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of our lives. Because if Jesus is not the Lord and Master of all of our life, He's not Lord and Master at all in our life. That's what those people on Pentecost asked Peter. They said, Peter, how do we make Jesus the Lord and Master of our lives? Peter said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If Jesus is not Lord and Master of your life today, this is the opportunity to change that as we stand and while we sing.